O God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That is the collect appointed for today, September the 25th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are looking at uh, passages in Jeremiah and over in 1 Timothy and in Luke's Gospel today. We're just moving forward in Luke's Gospel as we move towards uh, Advent, which is not in too terribly long anymore. It's about two months away. So I want to give you a heads up on our week. We went to uh, Cincinnati for a few days. We uh, First day we went to a Reds game, uh, enjoyed that very much. Um, went to, uh, hung out with a, a, an old friend um, who used to be my boss actually um, at Amazon when I was there for a while. And uh, was, that was fabulous, man. Just be, meeting Robin for the first time and spending the day with her was just a fabulous thing. And then um, had a great day at the zoo on Wednesday and um, then yesterday on the way home, we start, stopped at the Ark Encounter and spent about three or four hours there at the replica of Noah's Ark that's that's in well, Williamstown, Kentucky. So we spent, I don't know, like I said, most of the day there yesterday and then had a nice trip home. Glad to be home, but uh, loved being there. It, it was a great trip and uh, really enjoyed it. So the, the Ark Encounter, I, I, it was really, really well done. I mean, let's just start right there. It's it's first class as a, a, an attraction by itself. There's a lot of other stuff that's that's added on to it. Um, that, so there are other things to do once you get there. And, of course, all those things just cost more and more and more money. So <laughs> it's one of those kinds of things where, you know, it, if we get you here, then we're going to try and get every nickel out of you we possibly can, like everything else in the world. So I'm not blaming them for that. It's just one of those things. Um, the particular focus of uh, of it is, is tied in with the Creation Museum, which is next door. And so they have um, a, a television channel youtube channel called answers and it's so it's answers in genesis and their particular focus and their particular mission is young earth creationism which is the uh, the idea that the, the earth is about six thousand years old um they, they can make credible arguments for that I, i'm not going to argue with that i'm not going to i'm not going to quibble over it either uh, I just happen to believe that that the Earth is much older than that, and I believe in something called intelligent design, which is that because there's, it, from an evolutionary standpoint, there's pretty much no way that that life could have been assembled out of what we believe at best was present at that time. And so, what I believe is is that that God put everything here and had an intentional and a design, an intention and design for uh, everything. And so things come into being, go out of being. There are seasons of time when things flourish and things seasons of time when things don't flourish. So it, it, extinction doesn't bother me. None of those things bother me. But, but I believe that all these things were preordained by God. He knew what the final outcome was going to be, which separates me from um, evolutionary, theistic evolution, because what theistic evolution would say was God put all the material here and sort of kept in abeyance his knowledge of, of how everything would turn out. And so evolutionary processes, uh, Darwinian evolutionary processes, um, were what account for everything. Um, and so I just don't go there with that because, I, as I said, I believe in intelligent design because there are some things that can't be explained through evolutionary processes 
because as things would have developed, there would have been no use for most of the pieces of something that would that would have been present. That there's no reason for uh, for something to develop that that has no purpose, and, and it, it might develop without purpose, but but it won't continue without purpose. It's not an evolutionary advantage. Then it gets cast away. That's according to evolutionary theology or, or evolutionary theory. And it is a theology. So anyway, that that's my position is is that I believe that that God intelligently designed purposefully everything to be as it is, uh, and and there's a reason for everything to be exactly as it is. Uh, we don't know it, but <laughs> but it's all there. And so the diversity of of life on the planet to me is just absolutely stunning. And and so the Noah's Ark thing, like I said, was really well done. Like I said, it's, it's got two apologetics purposes. One is young Earth creationism, and the other apologetics purpose is to say it, it it was certainly possible for such a venture to have taken place. And so I, I think it was really well done. I highly commend it. Uh, I would encourage you to go. I would encourage you not to go in the summer, <laughs> probably when when schools are out. I would go at a time like we did, when not so many groups and all that kind of stuff might be there, and families with children, because it, it's just there's so much to take in, a lot of reading to do, blah blah blah. So it, it would be very difficult if it were more crowded than it were was when we were there. So anyway, there's my recommendation for you on that. So today, let's go ahead and get started with Jeremiah 32 verses one to three, and then. 6 to 15. So what's going on here is is that that the uh, exodus and the exile from the land are getting ready to take place. The people are going to Babylon. And so here we are in, in the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. So we, we're pinpointing the timing. So if you don't know who Zedekiah of Judah is, you don't know when his reign was, chances are pretty good you'll know when the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar was, not me and you, but <laughs> at the time that this was all written, it helps to, to be able to say, oh, okay, this is how we know when this was, the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon. So at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his own king, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. So Jeremiah is imprisoned for one reason, and that is is that he didn't prophesy things that the king wanted him to prophesy. He prophesied what God wanted him to prophesy. The king didn't want him to say, Look, that the, the, uh, Jerusalem is going to be overrun. You keep saying that, Jeremiah, and because you keep saying it, I'm going to put you over here and, and make you kind of shut up, make it so that your voice isn't heard. So he imprisons him for this. Now, sort of the opposite of Balaam and Balak, when Balak, the king of Moab, calls Balaam his prophet, who he says always prophesies bad things for me. He says, you come, you know, because of the insistence of the other king. No, you come. And so he comes, and he, and he won't bless Moab, and he won't curse Israel. And so he's frustrated with him. So here, what do we get? We get a king who wants a prophet for hire, a prophet who will prophesy the things he would prefer. But Jeremiah has too much integrity for that, and he has too much fear of the Lord for that as well. So in this instance, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that's its Anathoth. For the right of redemption purchases yours. So he would be the next one down the line. And, and so you've got to keep it within the tribe. And so he was king. He was in the tribe of Benjamin. 
So, so Jeremiah is offered an opportunity to redeem a piece of property that's otherwise going to kind of go on the market, as it were. And so this uncle has come and said, buy my field that's at Anathoth for the um, right of redemption by purchase is yours. So this is not a, a situation where Hanamel is selling to Jeremiah the, the rights to the produce of the land for a period of time. No, this is an open purchase because there's no one else left to redeem this property as far as the pecking order is concerned. So it would have come to this person and then this person. And it was very clearly delineated, the, the order of progression. So if Jeremiah can't do it, then, then it passes to another certain person in the chain. So, Jeremiah, so the Lord says, this is what's going to happen. So Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, so Hanamel is his cousin. So he comes to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, buy my field that's at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord, because it was exactly the way the Lord told him that it was going to go. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. So they weigh it out. They don't just show you, here's 17 shekels. No, they weigh it out to make sure that the money is pure, actually. It's sort of the way of seeing through a counterfeit, so that you're not giving him some, something of lesser value. The value is, is at least partially determined by the weight of the coins themselves to, for their purity value. I signed the deed, sealed it, got my witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. So I did everything according to Hoyle. I did everything exactly the way it was supposed to be done legally. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions in the open copy. So once we had done all the legal stuff, I took all the stuff there, and I took it with me. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. And Baruch was, was the scribe for Jeremiah. He's mentioned multiple times in the book of Jeremiah. So here he, he's giving this deed to Baruch. Now, why would he do this? Well, Jeremiah is an old man. He knows because he's already been told a few chapters before that they're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And so why would a, why would a man, the age of Jeremiah, who knows he's not going to come back from, uh, from captivity in Babylon, why would he buy property? He, he did it as a pledge and a sign. Remember, he's been made a captive for one reason, and that reason is that, that he prophesied that Jerusalem was going to be overrun. So when he buys this property that he's never going to uh, really—I mean, he'll own it, but he won't possess it because he's going to be in Babylon, and it, it's not going to look like it's his anymore because Babylon's not going to recognize any of that. They're not going to recognize any of these commercial transactions to do with land. They're claiming the land. And so when Jeremiah says, all right, I'll buy this property from you, I will pay good money to do this, what he is saying is, yes, I have prophesied that Jerusalem will be overrun, but I'm also testifying to the extent of my faith that we will return to the land. And one day, this deed, all this stuff here that, that's going to look silly and, and useless you know, when, when Babylon overruns the place and takes us into captivity, what he's saying is, is, is that I believe with all my heart and I'm willing to put my money on it that we will ultimately return here and that this deed will mean something to my relatives.
to those downstream from me who will come back to the land, and they will then own this property. So Jeremiah is putting his money where his mouth is. That's the bottom line for what's happening here. So, so when he does this, this should give comfort to Israel. Because he's saying, yes, it's going to be overrun, but that's not going to be a permanent situation. We will come back to the land. And so he gives all this to Baruch for safekeeping. Baruch must have been younger than him, and he must have believed that Baruch was going to be around long enough to see this thing through. So he, he does all this in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In other words, the word can get around. I did this publicly, and I did it publicly for a very good reason, and that is that I wanted everybody to know that I'm invested in the future of Israel, even though I won't participate. I mean, it's like a Martin Luther King moment, right? I, I, I don't, I've been to the mountaintop, but I don't believe I'm going to get there with you. And that's exactly what he's saying, and he's putting his money where his mouth is. And he's using his money to give comfort to the people of Israel. That what he's prophesied, that they're going to be overrun, they're going to be taken into captivity in Babylon, but they will ultimately return. He's putting his money where his mouth is and says, I believe this with all my heart. And so I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds. Both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, in other words, it'll go to the next of kin, and it'll be deeded over to them. I've already prepared this in advance, that it can be deeded over in an earthenware vessel. Put these things there that they may last for a long time, because they're going to have to. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. And so that is his sign and signal that, that the word that he has given is true. I'm putting my money where my mouth is, and, that, and I'm investing in God's kingdom. And I believe it's an eternal kingdom, and so I'm investing in this, even though this has got to last for a long time before it's of any value and use to the next generation or two. So it, it, it's, it's important, and this is something that, that really kind of needed to be said by me, because you can hear me sometimes and think that I'm against accumulating wealth and I'm, I'm against all this stuff. I'm not at all. Not at all. I've been fortunate in all my life to be around wonderful people who have lots of money and who've, who have had very successful lives, very successful businesses, and, and yet those businesses didn't control their lives. They were a significant part of their lives, but they were always available to the Lord, and their money, their assets were always available to the Lord as well. Most generous people that I've ever met in my life, and I would never, ever say to you that it's wrong to accumulate wealth or it's wrong to be successful. No, that's not true at all. But the reality is is that too often that pursuit becomes the primary thing such that it, it, you're, you're, there's never enough, and there never will be, right? As long as that's your goal, but it becomes like um, Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. You know, it's the precious. Is the business the precious? Is all this other stuff the precious, or is he the precious? You know, I, I said, I've... I've, I've uh, at Pauly's Island, I had somebody that um, trusted me, and, and we, we were having an audit of, of the church one year. And, and so what happened was is that the accountants came in and said, Reverend Green, we need you just to, we, we just need total ins to your discretionary account, total outs. We need beginning balance, total in, total out, and then ending balance. And I said, okay, fine. Um, so I gave them that information, 
And a little while later, they came in and said, Reverend Green, we need to talk. And I said, why? And they said, because what the, the, what's gone in and out of your account, your discretionary account, is more than has gone in and out of the other five clergy people's accounts. Why would that be? I said, well, because I got one guy who has a, who, who has a fair bit of money, who's, who's a pretty wealthy guy, and, and we do a lot of things through my account. And that is we, we put kids through school. We scholarship kids that don't even know where it's coming from. They have no earthly idea. They think it's just coming from the church. We, we bury people. We bail people out of jail. We do all this eleemosynary stuff through there. And they said, do you want to tell us who it is? I said, I do not. If he wanted anybody to know, he would, have, he would make it public. But, but he was the most generous man I've ever known in my life. Um, I, it's just unbelievable. We, when we came here, we lived in somebody's house for a while because we, we weren't sure where we were going to live. We didn't know what part of town we were going to live in. So this, this one couple said, hey, why don't you come stay at our house? We're gone half the year anyway. Well, this thing was enormous. And what I found out later was this one of the most generous guys that ever lived. I mean, he, he did so much with what God gave him, it's unbelievable. Not only that, he was willing to not just put his money where his mouth was, but he believed that there needed to be distribution of Bibles in China. He chose not to pay for that to happen. He chose to do it himself. And on and on and on it goes. I've, I've had so many people in, in, in the church who were, who were the most generous people that ever lived. The, and the wealthier they were, the more they were generous. And so it, it didn't, it, it, their wealth didn't ennoble them. God's Spirit ennobled them to use their wealth in the right way. And they were always available to me and for me. These were people who, who, whose lives could have been so busy and they could have said, John, there's so much going on with my business world right now that I don't have time for you. But never, ever, ever once did I have such a conversation with those guys. And so that, that's the point that I've been trying to make about wealth is don't let it control you. And then, then in, in last week, remember, we talked about the parable of the dishonest manager. And so Jesus says, make friends of yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And, and what he's saying is invest that money in God's kingdom. And, and when he's saying right, unrighteous, what he's saying is it's not holy. Our business pursuits aren't holy. That they're not righteous in that sense. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that they're not righteous, and that's the reason he goes on to say that um, you can't serve God money, and that's the whole point, literally. And so now what we come to is a, is another parable, or, or is it a parable? Because I'm not sure, frankly, that about because Jesus doesn't say. Oh, here I'm telling a parable. No, he says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Purple was very, very expensive. Fine linen was very, very expensive. So he was spending all his money on himself is the bottom line. And, and I was talking to a friend of mine not too terribly long ago, just a couple of years ago, who, who left as uh, a, a leadership team of a very large, wealthy church. And, and why did he leave? Because he said, look, we're spending literally 90% of our budget right here on our campus. There's something wrong with that. And so they, they said, this is, these are our budget priorities and, and he's, it, because of evangelism reasons. And he said, well, all right, well, I don't want to be part of that church because there's other ways of doing things and, and reaching people. So that, that's what's going on here is you've got a guy who's spending all his money on himself. He, he was clothed in purple and fine linen, features, feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
which is sort of what the the uh, Syrophoenician woman says to Jesus. Even the dogs get to eat the crumbs under the children's table. Here, that's that's all. It says Lazarus would have settled for that in the same way that the uh, in the parable of the prodigal son, that the son would have settled for the carobs, the, the stuff the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him any of that. So that that's what it is, is that, that Lazarus is lying there covered with sores, desiring to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So not even stuff off the table, but the stuff that landed on the floor. I mean, the five-second rule goes away here. He says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the dogs felt sorry for him. And that's a disgusting thing to think that you're lying there and the dogs are coming up and licking your sores. But at some level, we, we know that spit cures things, right? We, we've known that all our lives because mama spit cured stuff when we were little. So, But we do know, actually, that that saliva does have some properties to it that, that's of value. So the dogs came and licked his sores, but this rich man wouldn't do anything on his behalf. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, there's a lot in that that we're not going to unpack today. <laughs> so, at, so he's taken to the side of Abraham, and, and we know that that's the good place, right? as the Ted Danson show talks about. He says, the rich man also died and was buried. So the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So we don't even hear that he's buried. But the rich man died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. In other words, I know who he is. You know his name? You allowed a man whose name you knew to lay outside your gate, suffering and starving. You knew his name. You didn't overlook him. You knew exactly who he was. And now you're calling him by name and asking Abraham to have mercy on you when you had no mercy on Lazarus, and you're asking him to make Lazarus the instrument of the mercy? The same guy you showed no mercy to? You're asking, wow, you're so far out of your league, it's absolutely unbelievable. Wow. What hypocrisy. We would never, ever be capable of anything like that, would we? I might be. He says, Abraham says, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Lazarus, in his like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. How different it might have been had you shared your good things with him. Nope. I was only interested in my own comfort. I took no notice of the suffering in the world around me not even the suffering at my gate, even though I knew this man's name. He says, besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Those things are separated as far as the east is from the west. There's no way for one person to get to the other side of this. Once you're there, you're there. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. There's something good in the man. He cares about his family, at least. But is that enough? No, the answer is no, it's not enough. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus had already said, who are my mother and my brothers and my father? I mean, he's, he's not just redefining neighbor. He's calling neighbor family to the extent that you're, you're believers. He, he's raised the bar from neighbor to family. 
in that. And here, this man cares about his family. He doesn't want them to end up where he is. But Abraham said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They got everything they need. There's no message that, that you know now that you weren't capable of knowing then. Love your neighbor as yourself is about as clear as it gets. You, you didn't have to struggle with that. You just didn't do it. You can't say that it was not known to you. You just didn't care. And so he says, no, they have everything they need in order to know the truth here and know how to act. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Interesting, right? Considering exactly the way this is all going to go down and that Jesus will rise from the dead. And so there will be one who rises from the dead, but it ain't going to be this Lazarus you're talking about. Whether that's the same Lazarus as John 11 and he raises from the dead or not, I have no earthly idea. It doesn't seem to be possible that that would be the same person. So it's got to be a different person almost. But, but, but this guy's proposal is if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Well, good for you. You saw something true there. He said to him, he, Abraham, said to the rich man, which is interesting again because his name we don't know. We know Lazarus's name. We know the poor man's name because his name really matters. It's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The rich man's is not, so his name doesn't matter. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Their hearts are so hard, they're so interested in, in their financial well-being, for instance, that, that, and, their, and their, the peace that Rome brings and the ability that, that that peace brings to be able to have a good economy. They're so interested in that that they're not particularly interested in this other stuff, this theological stuff, this, well, life and death and eternal stuff. He says, no, they're, they're so consumed with the present world that they can't even hear the truth that's already there. And, and here's the key when we, when we move into this passage from 1 Timothy um, 6, verses 6 to 19, we're going to see the key to everything, I believe. I, I think we're going to see the key to life, and it's right here in the first verse that we're going to study, which is uh, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. That's Ecclesiastes again. It's to say, you, you know, you don't know when your life's going to be taken from you. So be content today. Be content today. I mean, you look at companies like Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A who have made a, a decision that, that, no, we're not going to open every day. We're not going to make every nickel we can possibly make. We're going to work six days a week. We're going to follow the biblical pattern that was laid out. And we're going to do that knowing we're leaving money on the table. But we believe that there's a Sabbath principle here that's important. And if we don't keep it internally, then we, we can't be a witness to the world about the importance of it. And so the world won't learn that lesson. And it's largely because the world runs on a different set of principles and values. And so godliness with contentment is great gain. It's eternal gain. We brought nothing into this world, and we can't take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these, we should be content, which is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 6 about why are you worried about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat? God takes care of all that. 
He said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And to that, I can only say amen. I've seen it happen again and again and again. If that's your goal, if that's what you're pursuing, the chances are pretty good somewhere along the way you're going to be so compromised that you can't actually continue to function as a Christian because the only thing that's important to you is this gain. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it, and it is. I mean, think about um, like professional athletes who absolutely are broke shortly after they retire. And it's because it, it's the money and the things that the money provides that, that causes this. That's how you get a guy like Jeff Epstein. That's how you get that, because I've sought this pleasure and this pleasure and this pleasure, and well, I've worn out the pleasure that's involved in all those things, so now what I want is something else, and so something else has to be further and further and further away from something good. I'm, I'm moving in a wrong direction, and that's what he says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue these things. Righteousness godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And, and that's the, the, the principle here, is what comes, comes, but pursue these things with all your heart. You, you can continue to do your business and continue to dedicate and devote your business to the Lord, but He wants your life. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants every part of you to be available to him for his use. And whatever he gives you needs to be available for his use as well. For the, uh, he says, but for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So I charge you, based on all this, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, keep the Word of God. Live according to the Word of God. Keep those things as your priorities and your first principles. He says, which, the, 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 until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. At the end of the day, he says, you're serving these other kings and you're serving these other lords when you do this stuff, when you're pursuing all that other stuff, and what you need to recognize that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Oh, oh, maybe the most important thing I can do is please that guy, the king of kings and the lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Again, whenever you do theology right, it leads to doxology. Theology, knowledge of God, doxology, praise of God. And that's exactly what Paul does here again. Right? So he's giving you theology. How do we live? What do we know about God? that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and then that leads him to say that um, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, who no one has ever can see or seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich, he says in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. He's not saying give away everything you have. He's not saying don't be rich. He says, no, no, no. If you're rich, don't be haughty. Don't look down on people. Consider all men your brothers. All women, your sisters. 
Consider it that way. Don't see yourself as a special kind of person. Don't say, do you know who I am? Doesn't matter. Ultimately, you're going the way of all flesh, right? So don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That stuff could go away tomorrow. You could lose it all. I mean, I can certainly remember over time when I worked in banks and stuff, watching people make money and then something changed. And then suddenly they lost everything. It happens. So don't put your hopes on that, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And everything can mean literally everything. Suzanne and I were talking yesterday as we were driving back that what, what a beautiful thing the mountains are, what a beautiful thing the rolling hills of, of Kentucky are, what a beautiful thing the shoreline is. I can enjoy all of that stuff. I can go out in the woods today, and I will, and enjoy God's good creation. He gives me things to enjoy. I don't have to go far afield to find things to enjoy. I can look at the smallest thing and see that God made it and see the intelligent design involved in the creation of all things. And then I can see places where we, mankind, have improved upon that creation, where we've done things creatively to the glory of God, and they're raised to a different level of beauty. But all that mimics God's good creation. And so he's telling rich people how to to live. So don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes on uncertain wealth. He says they're to do good, the wealthy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works. So invest wisely. Use, make use of the unrighteous wealth so that you can gain places for yourselves in the eternal dwellings. So use it the right way. Know that it's not yours and it's not a permanent thing. He says, be rich in good works, generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And I've said this a million times, is that where you put your time and your talent and your treasure tells us exactly who's your master, right? So when... when um, Jeremiah is willing to put time, talent, and treasure into God's kingdom. No matter what the cost to himself might be, he's imprisoned, but he won't back down from the truth on that. And, and then when he's given an opportunity to invest in the future of God's kingdom and God's people as a sign to the people that there's a pledge that, that I believe with all my heart that the same God who told me this, that we're going to be in captivity, also told me we're going to be brought back. And so I'm willing to invest my money in the future, I believe God promised. And we see that same thing in this rich man and Lazarus story, that, that what would have been different if the rich man had actually loved his neighbor and invested in Lazarus? He had cared for Lazarus in the same way that the Good Samaritan cared for the man who had been injured. And then here, we're told how to live. And you don't have to be rich to be generous. But if you are rich, he says, be particularly generous. And be ready to share, because you know that's yours, that, that's yours on loan from God. It's his, ultimately, not yours. Because one day you won't be, and that wealth will belong to another. Ultimately, recognize that all of it belongs to God, and be willing to give and do anything that he might require, but be quick to be on the lookout for those things. Don't hide from the world, he says. No, be part of it in order that you'd see the needs that are out there.